Welcome to the Where Does It Come From podcast. I'm Joe Salter, your podcast host and founder of Where Does It Come From, a social enterprise focusing on kind clothes that tell tales. In this podcast, I chat with amazing people who've dedicated themselves to making our world a better place through business, social enterprise, campaigning and much more. In this episode, I'm talking with PR and CSR specialist and author Sangeeta Waldron. In our discussion, we explore the intricate balance between public relations, corporate social responsibility and greenwashing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Where Does It Come From podcast. Today, I'm really pleased to have with me Sangeeta Waldron, um, who's a PR consultant, an author, and many, many more things as well. So first of all, I'm going to ask Sangeeta to introduce herself and share her fascinating journey, because I'm sure the audience would love to know more about all the interesting roles you've had. Hi, Joe. I'm really pleased to be here and um, really delighted to be speaking with you today. And yes, I wear many, many hats. Uh, Just one head, though. Um, So I run my own PR agency uh, called Serendipity PR and Media, which I set up in 2009. Um, But I've been over 30 odd years in this industry. And I started out my career Well, actually, if I rewind a little bit, it might be interesting, but I actually completed my college and university in India and I came back to the UK. And when I came back to the UK at that time, uh, there was a recession um, (laughs) going on and no one, there was no jobs, basically. And I, I thought, what am I going to do? And I was on my own and um, I went to the job centre. He offered me a job and I thought I couldn't possibly work at the job centre. And I went back to where I was staying and I just said, oh, someone's offered me a job. You know, the job centre's offered me a job. And he said, go back and take it. Somebody's offered you a job and you're wearing dungarees. Go back and take that job. So And so it was a job at the job centre. And while there, I um, somebody said to me, why don't you apply for the civil service? You've, they're doing a fast track at that time. So I applied. I got through. So I spent the first five years of my career working in the cabinet office, um, writing speeches for a previous prime minister and speeches for ministers but I just thought this was not what I really wanted to do when I came out of uni I really wanted to be a copywriter and there's just so much uh, creativity believe it or not that you can do with the minister prime minister speech so I left and I went to go and work for a very small not-for-profit called the Panos Institute and at that time it was really well known for the work it was doing in what we call the the global south And that was my first kind of press and media job. And then after that, I just kept, well, I just kept looking at the Guardian job pages to fast track my career. And um, and along the way, I've worked for the I was the first head of PR for the Women's Institute. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you remember when they slow hand clapped uh, Tony Blair 
um prime minister at one yes, time I wi calendar girls um yeah. uh, that was another thing and then i went to go and i was the first global uh director of comms and marketing for the economist group working directly for the ceo at that time helen alexander who was the only woman at that time in the square mile and so that was in sort of 2000 yeah. And then I went along and I, I worked for the first mayor of London, um, Ken Livingston. So it was lots of first time roles. And then um, just before I set up my own agency in 2009, I was working for a breast cancer charity. And when I started, it was just myself and two others. And the time I left, we were an award winning team of 10, which was amazing. And um, and then I took time out I fell pregnant and I thought, you know what, I really want to take time out. And I also know I'm not the kind of person that can be, um, you know, sort of multifunctional, multitasking, because um, I thought our, our son would be wearing his shoes on his ears if I was trying to do everything <laughs> out once. So um, I took time out and we were in that privileged position that I could. And then 2008 happened the global recession, everything went pear-shaped. And that's when I set up my agency because my husband lost his job and I thought I need to do something. So, And I also thought if I can survive a global recession, I'll survive anything. And here I am. Amazing. Do you know, do you know I, I'm feeling my imposter syndrome coming on, hearing about all the things that you've done. Absolutely amazing. Um, it's, I it's... suffer a lot from imposter syndrome. Um, I, think I always remember when they offered they offered me the job at the um, the Economist. I put them on hold because I thought they must have got the wrong person. <laughs> so, I do, yeah. I do actually have that occasionally because um, the there's a lady called Jo Salter who was the first ever RAF fighter pilot and she's now a speaker. And I was on the train recently uh, last year, I think, and the BBC rang and said, "Oh, hi, are you Jo Salter?" And I've been interviewed on the BBC before, and they and I. They, I said, is it me you want or the RAF pilot? And they said, oh, the RAF pilot. I said, oh, well, you can get in touch with her, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it was practical about it. So sometimes imposter syndrome is reasonable, but not that often. But yeah, it sounds like a lot of your roles, if not all of your roles, when you're talking about them, are about, I don't know, enabling influences. So you've supported through speech writing, you've supported charity. So supporting change making from behind the scenes would that make sense yeah I mean I've been very conscious about the roles I've applied for so they've they've had to be roles that spoke to me that I felt I was making a difference in some way or brands I believed in and I mean there's interesting things I mean the WI is some of the big campaigns started from the Women's Institute, such as AIDS Awareness, Keep Britain Tidy, Fair Trade. Um, so, yeah, and, and they've always been first-time roles because I like going in, you know, you're starting from scratch. You've got nothing to prove to anyone except yourself. Um, and, yeah, so, yeah, you're right. I've never heard somebody kind of, summarize it in that way it's a good summarize you know that it's about enabling just thinking well enabling but as you say the firsts so I mean the Women's Institute is amazing and they get so much 
I suppose they get a little bit of ridicule as people who make nice flower arrangements and, and things like that. But I was in the Women's Institute myself as a member. I ended I left at lockdown, as many of us did. But the campaigning part of it is massive, but also the community part of it, you know. So you've got women of all ages getting together to do something creative. And I think just there's there's a, there's a real positive in that as well as all of the amazing campaigning. And there's a lot of that going on as well. Absolutely. I mean, community is so important. And I know we're going to talk a, a little bit more about community because community touches everything. It really does. And um, with 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 the... You know, with the steps that have been taken over the last 30, 40 years to almost push community to the backside, backside, you know what I mean? The, the other, the back, <laughs> backside, something different, but the, to push community out of the way and focus purely on bottom line, you know, and I think people are now going enough, especially after lockdown. We want some community. We want to be able to talk with people and have a good working environment. And it's not just always about the bottom line, you know, and we have to look after our people. And all the people of the world but that's it's amazing hearing about your journey and as i say um i'm incredibly imposterish so the second question i was going to ask you was your journey in relation to sustainability because we met um at the recent event i helped organize called threads of change when you were talking about your book corporate so- social responsibility is not public relations and i know we talked at the time about that and also about how that fitted in with greenwashing and, and all of these kind of things but i'm interested in knowing how did you see this whole balance between corporate social responsibility and pr especially over the recent years with greenwashing rearing its ugly head yeah i mean that's a really good question um so I've worked a lot with charities and um so before writing the book part of my career has been working within charities and where you have corporate partners and you always have corporate partners that are not really sincerely supporting the charity it's re- it's more about the organ you know the the brand and they're always saying to the charity you know we want this celebrity get this celebrity you know we want we want this we want that and they really beat the charity over the head with their demands so that's one thing and um if we go back to 2019 which seems like a lifetime ago and i say that because that was a turning point but in 2019 we were we didn't really value corporate social responsibility or we call it CSR. It was like the poor relation in any kind of organization, no budget. It was bolted on to H- HR human resources to make um, employees feel good, or it was bolted on into comms uh, to make a brand look good. And so, it, and, you know, invariably it had no budget, had no kudos. It, it was just there. It was just on the outskirts. And then along come the pandemic and it's changed everything because while we were all sat at home, we were really looking at organisations and brands and how they were delivering what they were doing. And during that time, we all decided, doesn't matter where we were in the world or what we were doing, we all wanted better from brands and businesses. And so so much research and data came out during that period showing People really wanted brands to be walking their talk and not to be greenwashing. So I really, I feel that while the pandemic's been really hard and taken away 
a lot from us. It's also given us this value of what CSR is and what it can do for us. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, there's a huge number of. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't want to say positives, but it's not positives. I suppose it's learning points from the pandemic. I mean, one was the love of nature, of course, community. We've already talked about, and also. Uh, it seems to me, and I was only talking about this the other day, the Christmas of 2020, so the first Christmas that we had lockdown, people were gifting responsibly, weren't they? There was there was a real different sense of, um, I suppose, people who were furloughed had money in their pockets, people had time on their hands, so they were looking up different businesses and finding out their backgrounds. People were much more aware about supporting local initiatives and I remember that Christmas in particular as being one where my own small business where does it come from it was shocking and lovely how many people wanted to support us through buying gifts with us um, which was amazing but I don't know I suppose maybe I am slightly cynical because since then I feel that there's been a lot of push from government and our market systems that we have in place in the world certainly our part of the world to push people back to where they were before the pandemic when it comes to their behaviours, their spending, um, and again, looking at the bottom line of things. I don't know what you feel about that. Oh, I, I agree. But I think the workplace has changed fundamentally and we are pushing back. So hybrid working is still is in existence. And if I look at my local community, my local high street, in, in again in 2019 we had lots of charity shops and lots of betting shops now it's full of cafes and it's thriving because more and more people are working from home or they want to work locally and they're going into a local cafe to do to work from so i think in a way we've kind of our mindset has changed we mm. want more from our from our working lives we don't want to be doing that hamster wheel that traveling and also cost of living is soared and people don't have the income even to get into work i know some people are saving just on travel yeah um so while there is this kind of pushback because i guess it's economics and and all that kind of stuff but i think i've been talking to lots of people and people are saying we need a different way to measure economics of a country um and maybe it's not gdp and maybe it's another way to measure whether it you know it's taking into account people's well-being um yeah. health all those other kinds of um elements that are really important really? because they do impact um yeah. the economics because then how much are you investing in your health system so exactly. I, I think a lot in that no, ab- absolutely. And I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've come across it, but if anyone listening hasn't come across it, I did a um, recording, a podcast with Erinch Sahan from Donut Economics um, oh. earlier this year. So if you're interested in new economic systems, which I personally am, that's a good podcast to listen to, because that does exactly what you just said, Sangeeta. It talks about um, the different things that you need to focus on rather than just the bottom line. You're looking at um, the environment community the whole worldwide health you know and i think there's going to be a lot more work on economic systems um over the next few years because i think as you say a lot of us are realizing that just looking at 
the money is not is not a measure of how well a society is working. And we can see that in the UK at the moment. Um, interestingly, my son, um, who just turned 16, is looking at his GCSEs and economics was on is on his potential list. So we were, went around a few local colleges and they, they the economics teachers were telling us what the syllabus was. And I actually, one particular college, I said something about what about new economic systems like donut economics and things like that? And he, his eyes lit up, this teacher's, and he went, yes, yes, it's not on the syllabus. But I always try to talk about those things and bring those kind of things in. So I think there's there's even a pushback within the teaching profession, which I was really pleased about. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that because uh, we were doing that last year and um, we were, you know, we were going around talking to different teachers at different schools and it made me realize the education system's not uh, reflective of what we're all dealing with. And it's not really preparing uh, the next generation with what they need. Yeah. Um, and again, that's something else that's come up a lot, you know, in conversation is the world is changing and we're not equipped. Governments are not equipped. We're, we're very short termism with everything. Um, and that's got to change fundamentally because there is there is no business without the planet no no and, <laughs> yeah and so i think when we need to really get our heads around that because we're at this tipping point definitely uh, definitely we had um at our threads of change event where you kindly spoke we had a whole day on education and i still feel we didn't you know, you know, there's so much more that could have been said and hopefully will be said. And we're, we're planning to do more on that. But we had university people and we had somebody who's just recently graduated. We had um, Kishore uh, Shah, who's a uh, expert in this area, talking about education systems. So teaching skills and knowledge and all of those things. But it, you can't you can't just fill people's heads with facts now because. The way the world is now, it's almost like you need to learn how to learn, don't you? You need to learn how to move into an environment and cope with it. And the rapidly changing world that we're we're now in, it's how do you how do you have the skills to deal with that world? Absolutely. I mean, um, and also there's so much information. You know, you always have to check your source of mm-hmm. oh, where yeah. your information's coming from. And I mean, we've touched on community in the pandemic. And I just want to, there's something that I just want to mention. During the pandemic, local communities started to rely more on their local newspaper than ever before for local news because people wanted to know what's happening locally. So I guess, you know, also with information streams, um, we need to check our sources because we know there is just so much misinformation um and, yeah, think, and that that's that's dangerous i think that's such a valid point sangeeta i think that's 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 it touches on everything doesn't it because um it touches on politics the very people who are making the big, big decisions in the world in this world people who are taking information from an unreliable source um and making their voting decisions based on that it has such a big influence on things shopping decisions you know all sorts of different things where people are the, the sources of the information are not maybe reliable because there is no there's no clear way yet has been devised and hopefully it will to actually fact check information that people are are seeing and that is very frightening i think 
Yeah, I think that now what is happening is before, you know, we had, some, you know, conscious consumers where we were all making informed choices. But now it goes at a much deeper level where I think we can't just sort of look at something from the surface. We've got to sadly really dig and to understand, is this really a brand that's saying what it says it's doing? Is this a uh, a political party that we really want to vote for? Is it really saying what it's saying? Because things are not what they appear, sadly. And we're finding, I mean, this term greenwashing has come out since 2019. We're using it in so many different ways. Um and it's it's a kind of it's really sad because it's reflective of the world we're living in. We can't trust the information. We can't trust people. We can't trust politicians. We can't trust brands. Um, I mean, where what can we trust? And I, I think it comes back to if we know our local community, then hopefully we can trust our local community, our neighbours, um, the small businesses, the small brands. I think it, it's it's very much that right now. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And that is the education, as you rightly say, that we need to be giving to our next generations is how to see through this and find the true information at the bottom. Just because something is on the internet or just because someone tells you something or just because something's printed on a newspaper, you don't just take that at face value, which unfortunately is the case, I think, for quite a lot of the population at the moment and through no fault of their own, just the way that they've been, their lives have been, you know. And I think we've seen, as you said, in in politics, we've seen in the UK a change from, I'm not saying politicians were honourable before, but I think we found that now that we know that there is proof politicians lie and they can lie without being punished for it and, it's kind of almost the culture's developed that it's okay to lie if you don't get caught. Whereas I think in the past, if somebody did get caught lying in business or in politics or ever, that would be their career certainly damaged, if not over. Yeah, and and before sort of chatting with you today, I was really thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, because politicians now seem to get away with lots of things, it kind of feeds down to what we expect of others and ourselves. And maybe we we now have this sort of, I don't know, this very loose kind of fabric of what we we see as truth and what we what we are willing to accept. I, it, it's all very sort of there's no the, the areas are not black and white anymore. But mm. saying that, I do think now businesses can't get away with as much as they used to before because because again because of the internet you can be cancelled you can be called out yes so yes that's, that's, with, the, well, with your pr hat on i expect you see that quite a lot that, that um it's for me as a, a non-pr person you know uh, it it always amazes me when something does become viral and some campaign against something will take off and it and normally it's on social media and then it'll get picked up by the press and, and it'll it'll snowball from there. Yeah. So you do have to be really, really careful. And and that's driven that's the grassroots thing, back to the community thing again, which I think is is really, really key, isn't it? Is having if you if you push people 
far enough and they push back and they gather together, then they will they can take you down basically. Yeah, I mean we've seen even before um the pandemic, but we've seen really sort of strong activism from communities, communities in India that got together when they found uh that I think it was uh Pepsi. I think it was Pepsi who was dumping polluted waste into their into their river and the community got together and um they won and so i think people power is so important yeah um, and i i think in this day and age when we think we we don't have a lot of power i think as communities we do we do and i think the other thing you you highlighted there which is something i feel very strongly about is the rule of law I think we have um, organisations in the UK and globally, of course, that are taking account, take, taking a lot of this to task by using the law, you know, by, well, we know laws can be changed by the governments, but we have to keep pushing back on that so we don't end up with some kind of system where, as communities, we, we no longer have the right to protest about things that are being done to us. So I think at the um, Climate Earth and the Good Law Project and those kind of organisations, they use the law and they say this isn't good enough and people support them and things get changed. Absolutely. There's a new law that's kind of coming in. Um, It's taken years to happen and it's called Ecocide. Yes. And what they are doing is we're bringing in a law so companies such as some of the fossil fuel companies where in the past they've had these terrible oil spillage um, due to um, just really weak governance or not really being thorough with their what they're doing in their processes now can be the CEO can be held accountable. So before no one was held accountable. And I think that's just really powerful. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's going to be a game changer yeah. in in delivery of business, accountability, and maybe that will also start to filter down to governments who, um, you know, turn a blind eye to different things or making, you know, some of these arm deals that are not in the interest of people or the planet. No, I agree. And I, I, I really hope you're right. No, you just reminded me when I did my postgrad, which is oh, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now, I remember learning that I did um, a development management one. And I remember learning that um, basically you could a CEO wouldn't be personally liable. It would be a business. And I remember being quite horrified by that. And if you think about what's been happening with water quality in the UK, yep. you know, and these these companies can they know that they just think of it financially. They can keep dumping sewage in our water systems and all they do is pay a fine, which actually is far less money than they would have to pay to clean it up. And you think, well, that can't be right, can it? No. And this, um, the dumping of sewage is a really good example of I remember during 2021 or when we were still in lockdown people were tweeting about um, the dumping of sewage and it became a campaign online. And it's that is people power. And um, now we're talking about it. It's no, I mean, at that time, I remember when it was called Twitter, now it's X, um, that um, everyone was really outing their MP Mm. um, and shaming and quite rightly so, because 
I mean, that's just, I can't even fathom how or why we would let that happen to our water waterways. Yeah. I do. I, I do sometimes feel we have got a bit complacent generally in assuming other people will sort all these things out for us, you know, and I think assuming your MP is actually going to stand up for the things that we would consider to be right, you know, I think, so I think these grassroots, there are some amazing people who put everything on the line to, to, to raise these issues and get people interested. But I think there's still a huge number of people who just think it must be okay. There must be something going on because they wouldn't do this to us. But I think we're now beginning to realize that, that, when it comes to money, yes, they would, you know. And I think it comes back to this point where we, in the past, we could assume now it is our responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility to really read and understand what we need to be doing to make things better, just whether it's in your local neighbourhood or whatever it is. Um, we need to be far more conscious and, and awake. Yes, that's that. exactly right. Exactly right. Conscious and awake. And people talk about, I don't want to get involved in politics. And I agree, you know, I, I can understand that. But I think people don't understand what politics means. It doesn't mean going around the streets, talking to people and knocking on doors necessarily. It means being involved in your local um, communities, um, your na- national community. And as you say, being awake knowing what's happening and helping where you can to get the things that you want to happen you can't just expect it to happen if you don't get involved in it so I think that's a really good point Um, I want to bring it back to greenwashing actually because we briefly mentioned that didn't we earlier on so greenwashing as you say came around really about 2019 and it was a realization I think by brands that some of the issues that you as you said came out a bit more recently that consumers as we call them sometimes um wanted to know more wanted to feel good about what they were buying rather than just buying something to do with money so they responded to that by putting out information on their company websites or through advertising campaigns basically claiming to be far more ethical and sustainable than they really are um Mm. but there's been it's been legal pushback on that. I believe Norway now has an anti-greenwashing law and there's other laws going on, um, coming on to statute books in various places whereby companies can no longer claim things that are not true. Um, so what's your thoughts about that? I think that's it's so necessary uh, because we can't rely, as we know, we can't rely on businesses um, to be telling us the truth. Look at the fossil fuel industry. Look at uh, the tobacco industry. I mean, uh, they've for years have had data showing what those uh, products will be doing to our health, uh, but they've hidden it. Um, and yes, Europe's far more advanced with its sort of greenwashing laws than we are here in the UK. And um, I think it, it, you know, when we what brands do is they kind of look at their CSR or their, you know, what they want to tell the world and what they want to tell their customers. But it's not baked into their business strategy. It's not part of their purpose. And that's where it goes horribly wrong. When it's not your purpose and it's you just say, oh, it's a comms, it, you know, it's your PR department to make the the brand look good. Or it's just we're just going to recruit people 
from our HR that maybe have certain kind of values. When it's when it's disparate like that, it it doesn't work um, cohesively within a brand. So it's really got to be baked in to the heart of the brand. And then when it is, when you know it's it's the purpose, for example, like the body shop or um, uh, Patagonia. Yeah, I mean that that's that's a that or Ben and Jerry's ice cream. You know that they are doing everything with that one mission or whatever that might be, and you can buy from that knowing your as the consumer whatever your your intention is that it's joined up with the brand. Um, but you find a lot of brands like Boohoo uh, dot com H um, and M they're just selling the the uh, consumer um what they think the consumer wants and that is greenwashing yeah yeah no, we, we talked about this i think didn't we had threads of change when it came to some of the fast fashion brands and i think obviously that's up my street to find out more about but the the information on their websites i always find really interesting as I've, i think i've mentioned to you before so they'll put they'll put something like 15% and I'm making that number up 15% of our cotton is from responsible sources and you think well hang on a minute what about the other 85% you know so it's, it's how they position these things and then they'll have photographs of farmers smiling away happily scything something you know it, it, it's just it creates that illusion of um of something being good and my friends recently dragged me to a fast fashion shop because they said I had to go and see what it was like and I remember being, I won't name the brands, but I remember being quite horrified by the amount of recycled polyester that they were talking about. Um, you know, this is all really good because it's recycled polyester. And my friend that I was with actually bought a dress because she said, it, well, it's good because it's recycled polyester. And I said, well, no, it is good that they've recycled the polyester. But by putting it in a dress that's going to go get washed over and over and over again, it's not solving the microfibers project uh, problem at all if they used a sustainable natural fiber or something like that which is going to cost them more which is why they don't want to um that that that's far better for the environment but people catch on to the recycled and the you know these these words that are powerful and they believe that they're then doing the right thing yes and it, it's that it's it's that sort of good pr isn't it recycle um 15% organic um you don't think about you know like you say the the rest of the 85% yeah. or yeah. you know using less water all these kind are buzzwords yeah. they mean nothing unless it's really joined up and i i also think you know we've got to be we've also got to be more awake because there is no way a 5 pound t-shirt can be a good thing for the planet because it doesn't mean that farmer is going to make that full five pounds. They probably get something like 50p if they're lucky. Oh, not, not nowhere near. I even not even that. Uh, pennies, if that. Yeah. But yes, it, 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 you're right. Because well, I think that, that, that raises a, the other point about the fast fashion, that you cannot call a fashion brand sustainable if they're creating to the scale that they are creating. It just isn't possible because, it, the, you know, it, it's mass farming, mass production. You know, that's how they bring the prices down. But that is basically destroying the planet. So they don't talk about that on their websites. No. And also, we know, we know good things for us are expensive. Look at, um, you know, if you want to buy uh, 
organic vegetables. They're not cheap. No. So where is a, you know, a five pound supposedly 50% organic T-shirt going to be, you know, that price? It can't be. So we, we need to really, we need to be more switched on and think, hang on a minute, that can't be right. We need to question things. And yeah. it might mean a little bit more, you know, more effort, but it's worth it in the long term. I think that's right. And it can't it can't carry on like this either. I mean, I think we've our market economy has pushed people into thinking what an acceptable price for something is. And as someone who runs a brand, um, you know, I can tell people that the prices that they are creating things for are not possible if you're doing it properly. You know, what we do, where does it come from? We source the cotton from good sources. We work all the way through the value chain. We work with social enterprises, make sure that everyone's paid fair wages. It is not possible to create something for five pounds unless you're mass producing it and you're using things you don't want to use on your projects and people being treated in ways that you wouldn't want them to be treated. It's just not possible. No. Um, so going back to um, legislation, though, when one conversation that we had in Threads of Change, you were explaining to the audience about the recent legislative changes that happened in India. We were a bit ahead of us, ahead of the game on this one, I would say. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, that yeah, really- uh, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, this fact always astounds everyone. And I, because it's India, and I think we have this kind of, thought here in the west that we will teach the east and really the east can teach us a lot so in 2014 india brought in the government brought in a law compulsory law that um, all companies whether they're uh, national companies or multinational companies have to give two percent of their net profit and invest it back into authentic CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility Initiatives. And that's been a game changer. I mean, some people will argue, well, why do you need a law? But my argument is you can't always rely on businesses to do the right thing. We know that. History's told us that. So, and I, it's, and since India's done that, other countries have come on board. Um, I think China, Indonesia, uh, they now have CSR laws. We don't have one yet here. And I think it's so easy to set up a company. Why can't we have a box that says whatever business we're starting will also be CSR led? You know, I think that should be we do one for tax, do one for CSR. Mm. Yeah. As someone said to me recently, wouldn't it be great if social enterprises didn't need to exist because that was just running a business, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Because my, both the businesses I'm involved with, where does it come from, and Cardi London, they're registered social enterprises. And really all that is saying is that you have your, your company mission and any excess profits will get fed into that company mission, which is surely what you would want to have anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it, it just, it seems, yeah, it just no seems. Brainerish. Yeah, no brain, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's fascinating that, uh, what what India have done, and as you say, such a simple thing uh, to to actually to to have there to say that companies have to do this. I I hope that the UK will pick this up and run with it and do different things with it and, and have a business structure that is not just about making money. 
uh, that would be the that would be the ideal, wouldn't it? Good for employees, good for customers, good for the planet, good for the workers. It would be fabulous all the way back to the original, the original yeah. fibers, and and at the end as well, things that happen at the end to products. That it's all encompassed in the company value. Um, anyway, we've had a fantastic discussion. I know we could probably go on for hours, but I want to um, ask you what's next for you, Sandita? Have you got any more books in line? Any more serious issues you want to get involved with? Well, I'm currently writing my third book on climate change and legacy. And um, I'm writing that now for publication in 2024. And I'm learning a lot while writing this book. And there are different themes from food to business, to um, global governance, to communities, and music. Um, and the whole idea of the book is I'm into, well, I, I call them conversations. I'm having conversations with different thought leaders. Uh, and there's also a chapter on science and some of the leading scientists in the world right now about climate and some of the things that we can do, very simple things that we can do to make a difference and um when i started to write this book i thought it'd be you know would it be quite all doom and gloom but interestingly and heartening uh very heartening is that everyone is very optimistic for the future very hopeful even the scientists i thought they would not would not be with all the data that they're dealing with but they are they are very optimistic for change that's good to know definitely oh it's an exciting book definitely if you need to talk to anyone about fashion here i am i will <laughs> thank you <laughs> but that is that is fascinating about the positivity as you say because i remember being on, i was on a panel i can't it was this year or last year um and um the last question that the interviewer asked us was about um what we felt was going to happen in the next 10 years and three out of the four of us said that we were positive cautiously optimistic I guess was the phrase that we can still turn this around um and you know although it was definitely a cautious optimism I remember the fourth panelist who was um one of the co-founders of uh, Extinction Rebellions I won't say her name but she um she was not optimistic and I think she just seen so much and she was so in there you know fighting it day by day she was like I don't know if we can do this I don't know if we can turn it around and I I, I think we probably all have moments like that and I think it's just really important to try as you said before to keep awake keep involved and if you think something isn't going the way that you want get involved with it you know try and change it yourself we, we, we don't mustn't let things happen to us it's too much to lose here yeah to speak up um mm. I think uh even if you're that one voice it doesn't matter because somebody will hear you and that becomes two and, and that's how things grow. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, there, there are, I mean, I've been, since writing this book, I've learned there are things such as climate grief, um, climate anxiety, and there are all these things. And of course they're, they're not to be dismissed, but as somebody said to me when I, who I spoke to, if you don't have hope, you can't change anything. I would agree definitely, and I think I think it's 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 trying to persuade people who are really busy and really struggling. You know, we've got economic crises, um, busy lives, and used to, looking for some kind of balance and normality in the world. And the balance and the normality in the world 
tends to come through the television or radio or movies or those kind of things. We need somehow to infiltrate and get the message through. That's why I loved um, Don't Look Up, the movie um, last year, because I think that showed really clearly in an entertaining way what happens if we don't get involved. What happens if we just let things happen to us? So I hope we're going to see more of that kind of thing as well. So do I. I mean, things can't change um, without us all being involved and just questioning, maybe what can I do better? That's a really simple way to approach things. What can I do better? Or, you know, if when you're going shopping, what can I do better with my basket? Or if I'm going into, you're going into a fast fashion shop, what can I do better if I need to buy something? Mm, Just walk walk out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you'd hope. You walk <laughs> out and go somewhere else, or maybe shop in your wardrobe. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so. I just think that's really powerful. Shopping in your wardrobe. Yeah, all your um, friends' wardrobes. <laughs> your yeah. wardrobe. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree entirely. And, and there's so much. There's loads of exciting things going on in fashion. It's not. A, it's not a negative thing. It's just steering clear of those fast fashion brands, in my view, definitely. But oh, I agree. Important. Brings us on to the last question, which is very neatly, is what do you recommend, Sangeeta, that people can do as individuals to help drive change? And obviously, buying your book is a key part of it. (laughs) I love that plug. (laughs) Um, Yes. I mean, just to be, I think just to question, just don't take things at face value. I think just to question, question and just come back to, what can I do better? What can I, what's the one simple thing I can do? Um, because it starts with us. It doesn't start with you or who it really starts with us. And if we can make one change, whatever it might be, you know, we're going to buy one vegetable in season. That's one, that's one change. Um, you're not going to shop for a month. You know, if you normally shop in fast fashion, but you're not going to shop for a month. You might not think it's going to make a difference, but it will. It will slowly. It will because more people will have that kind of mindset. And that's when things will change. So it's really just a question. I would say question everything. Don't just take things at face value. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really good. Really, really good advice. And I think, as you said earlier, and if somebody does change something and then they explain to a friend that they've changed something it's amazing the ripple effect it's like do you remember when everyone took a takeaway cup if you then queued up for your coffee and you didn't have a takeaway cup you felt a bit of a plonk because everyone else had one and that was purely because you're being impacted by society is gradually moving you yes i mean they i mean um lots of people say the 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 best way to really raise awareness about climate change is just to keep talking about it. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to be um, doing anything, but if you just talk about it, that is creating change. So I think that that's also really important. Just become a ball. Yeah, no problem for me. (laughs) Uh, Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you, Sangeeta. So the last of all thing is where can people find out more about you if if you want people to get in touch with you or find out how how to buy your books or anything like that? Yes. So my book, I'll start with the book because you can find it in all good bookshops. Um, You can find it online um, and it's corporate social responsibility. It's not public relations. And you can find me. I'm 
I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on X, Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Same name. You won't find me under anything else. And um, you can uh, check me, uh, find me on my website, www.serendipitypr.co.uk. Yeah, and I'd love to hear from people. And if people do buy the book, I would love to know what people think. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, anything else you'd like to add? No, just thank you for having me. I've oh, loved it. <laughs> good, absolute pleasure. Now I hope we'll get you back again at some with the next book would be a good time, wouldn't it? But thank you so much for sparing um, us the time, Sangeeta. It's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Where Does It Come From podcast. Please rate us on your platform and follow us so that we can share this podcast with more people. And if you'd like to find out more about the work of Where Does It Come From, please visit our website on wheredoesitcomefrom.co.uk for kind clothes that tell tales.